I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In the aftermath of the confirmation of Justice Brett Kavanaugh, voices on the right and the left are asking an important question. Is there a legitimacy crisis at the U.S. Supreme Court? And if so, what can we do about it? Uh, Justices uh, Kagan and Sotomayor recently talked about the importance of the Supreme Court maintaining its nonpartisan legitimacy, and Chief Justice John Roberts added his voice to that important debate, emphasizing the crucial importance that Americans maintain their faith in the court as an impartial arbiter of the rule of law. Uh, joining us to discuss whether there's a legitimacy crisis, if so, what's causing it, and if so, what can we do about it, are two of America's leading scholars of the Constitution, and uh, we're so honored to have both of them. Jen Mascott is assistant professor at George Mason's Antonin Scalia Law School. Uh, professor Mascott clerked for then-Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit and testified on his behalf. She is a frequent commentator on constitutional issues and previously clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas. Professor Mascott, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. And Melissa Murray is professor at NYU Law School, and she specializes in constitutional and family law and reproductive rights. She testified against Justice Kavanaugh in his confirmation hearings and previously clerked for Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor, then of the Second Circuit, and has served as interim dean at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. Melissa, it was wonderful to see you in Berkeley uh, last year, and it is great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Okay, let's jump right in with the central question. Is there a legitimacy crisis at the Supreme Court in the 19... 80s. Majorities routinely reported they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the court. The latest Gallup polls from earlier this year found that only 37 percent had a great deal or a lot of confidence. Uh, uh, Jen, is there a legitimacy crisis at the Supreme Court? I do not think there's a legitimacy crisis, no. I mean, as you know, the Supreme Court's not driven by poll numbers. It, it shouldn't be driven by poll numbers. It's 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 a branch that's designed to be insulated to a degree from politics, from the political branches. And, you know, the Supreme Court this term uh, began business October 1st, and Justice Kavanaugh was actually on the bench to uh, be part of the cases heard the second week. And, you know, the the courtroom was, was full. I was there one of the days during oral arguments. I mean, the litigants proceeded as normal. The justices all um, seemed to get along fine on the bench. Uh, I believe the day previously when Justice Kavanaugh sat for the first time, the chief justice welcomed him on. Justice Kagan, who sits next to him, um, had some had some conversation with Je Justice Kavanaugh, and he jumped right in asking questions of parties. Um, and I think one of the things, you know, you look for with the Supreme Court being insulated from politics is, is it an independent body? Is the federal judiciary deciding cases just according to the law rather than uh, political preferences? All of the members of the court have expressed commitment to independence in the judiciary. Um, then Judge Kavanaugh expressed a lot of adherence and priority on that principle during his confirmation hearings and then over the course of his 12 years on the D.C. Circuit. And interestingly, um, during 
during the oral arguments that I happen to see uh, on Wednesday of, of last week, the second week that the court was in session, from questioning, it appeared that um, in at least one of the cases, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, from their questions, may not necessarily already even be seeing that one particular case the same way, both appointed by the same president, but they're on the court independently coming at cases perhaps from a different perspective, even though they were appointed by a president, you know, the one of the same president. Thank you so much for that. Melissa, you heard Jen's uh, introductory thoughts that there's not, in fact, a legitimacy crisis uh, when it comes to the court. Do you agree or not? Well, I don't think I would say um, in such unqualified terms that there is no legitimacy crisis. Uh, I agree that the Supreme Court at this moment is not necessarily an illegitimate institution. But I think the last month has certainly been a bruising one from the court, for the court. And I, I think we'd be hard pressed to say that the court um, hasn't been affected by what has happened during the confirmation process. As Professor Mascott says, the court, unlike the other branches, is insulated from the political process. It's supposed to be a neutral arbiter of the law. And I think for the public, at least, that question is um, is an open question now after what the public has seen in the course of the confirmation hearings. I mean, the confirmation hearings are always somewhat partisan with a lot of political posturing from the senators, but usually it, the nominee sort of stays the course, maintains a kind of neutral temperament and discusses his or her judicial record. And um, we can make some prognostications about what they might do on the court. But I don't think we've ever seen a situation where the nominee, now the justice, um, ever invade in such a partisan way about the confirmation process, about claims made against him, and invoked um, a sort of left-wing conspiracy against him. And I think those kinds of questions about whether or not this newest member of the court has been infected by a kind of partisan politics will certainly raise questions for the American public about whether the Supreme Court continues to be a neutral body. And again, do I think this is a kind of legitimacy crisis like we've seen like like after 1954 when the court got far ahead of some parts of the country on the question of integration and desegregation? Maybe not. But I think it's something that we will have to look at over time. And I think it's something that the chief justice, who is perhaps the most ardent steward of the court's um, reputation and legitimacy, will certainly be mindful of as they go forward and make decisions on some of the more controversial cases in this term and in upcoming terms. Thank you so much. So, uh, Jen, Melissa, as you've heard, uh, suggested that Justice Kavanaugh's comments in his confirmation hearings might lead people to see the court in partisan terms. I know you want to respond to that and then maybe say more broadly, has the increasing partisan tone of confirmation hearings uh, culminating in Justice Kavanaugh uh, possibly raised a legitimacy crisis at the court uh, and uh, are things worse than they were uh, more recently? So, um Thank you for that question. Um, as far as Justice Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearings, I mean, during the during the bulk of the days of the hearings, he was addressing you know legal principles and talking about his commitment to an independent judiciary. Um, you know, Professor Murray was was referencing the final days of the hearing, um, after, you know, when Justice Kavanaugh was responding to personal allegations. And I think I should I should first say, you know, I think the best way to continue sustaining the court's legitimacy and for the American people and the legal system to 
um, experienced Justice Kavanaugh is, of course, to see the approach that he takes now that he is on the Supreme Court and how is he going to be deciding cases? How is he going to be um, talking to litigants when they come into the courtroom? We've already seen that in the first week of arguments in which he's participated. You know, he and it, he struck a very similar style, it seemed to me, um, already in his first arguments at the Supreme Court as he had done at the D.C. Circuit, being very well prepared, having insightful questions, um, but trying to uh, you know, throw challenging questions to both sides. About the final day of the hearing, I mean, I, I think one observation that a lot of folks have made is that was a unique situation where, in a sense, it was almost as though then-Judge Kavanaugh was not really any longer operating in a role as a judge. He was a, a person facing um, allegations that were that were put forward on a public stage. And so I don't think um, the way that one has to strongly respond to dispel um, allegations that one believes are false is necessarily indicative of how that individual approaches a legal role or is, or how that person's going to be as a jurist when they're having to speak to very challenging um, circumstances in a personal capacity. About the question about the court in general and the confirmation proceedings, I do agree that, you know, confirmation proceedings have been challenging. I mean, you know, they, they're, they've always, they've been televised for quite some time. This particular time, you know, there were a lot of protests, a lot of contentious things that happened in a rose. And I think most people would agree that, um, you know, moving forward, it would be great to have more of the focus of the confirmation hearings be on the role of the court, the role of the legal system, the philosophy of the, uh, of the nominee sitting before the senators. Um, and, but, but I don't think that the fact that there was a particular type of, um, you know, protests or controversies that arose this time necessarily needs to, for all time, undermine the public's view of the court. I mean, my, my sense is from how sometimes this has played out in the past, and there have been contentious confirmation proceedings in the past, is that, you know, the public is very, um, reacts very strongly at the time and gets very involved in the confirmation hearings. And then the new justice sits on the court and tries to independently and fairly apply the law, and the country is able to move on and, um, and appreciate that individual's role on the court and the court's role as an institution, and that the most important thing above all is that the court as an institution continues continue to try to sit as an independent body and apply the law in the way that they believe is right. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Melissa, Jen gives us a, 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 an optimistic scenario that Justice Kavanaugh was facing unique circumstances, that he will operate as a justice for all the people, as he said in his swearing-in ceremony, and that the public eventually will uh, come to accept uh, the court's rulings as nonpartisan as in the past. Do you agree uh, that if Justice Kavanaugh uh, behaves that way that people might change their views? Or do you think something structurally has changed? And would that be n just the confirmation hearings or the possibility of lots of five to four decisions on the court that might change the way it's perceived in the public eye? So again, I, I don't want to say that this is an unqualified legitimacy crisis, but I don't think I'm as optimistic as Professor Mascot. So you know, perhaps I am the fly in the punch bowl at this party. <laughs> <laughs> and what a punch bowl it is. <laughs> what a punch bowl it is. Uh, yeah, I, again, I think it's true that the court has seen many bruising confirmation battles and, you know, public perception of the court dips and then it rises, it waxes and wanes. And, and that's pretty standard. But I think we haven't really reckoned with how unprecedented this particular confirmation battle was. I mean, I don't think I've seen in my lifetime, a Supreme Court nominee writing an op-ed that appeared in the Wall Street Journal defending 
his performance before the Senate Judiciary Committee. I don't think I've ever seen a nominee um, inveigh about um, the Clintons and sort of speak to a broad conspiracy against him. And I recognize that the circumstances were incredibly challenging. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to face those kinds of allegations and then have to answer for them in a public forum. But the fact remains, it was a job interview where one of the questions was whether or not you had the temperament to be on the nation's highest court and to receive a kind of public trust and be vested with that public trust. And I just think that Justice Kavanaugh's performance would certainly leave some people, future litigants, with some questions about whether or not he could be neutral as to their specific concerns. I mean, imagine being a woman bringing a claim that had something to do with sexual harassment or sexual misconduct. Um, would you believe that given that particular performance at the last part of the hearings that you would get a fair shake from Justice Kavanaugh? Maybe you would. Maybe his record as a jurist on the court would um, alleviate your concerns. But I think for many, you would probably wonder, what if we had a decision like Bush v. Gore that again came before the court and the court was in a position to essentially decide the course of an election? Um, would we feel comforted in knowing that this was a decision made neutrally? Or would we think, given what we have seen over the last month, that this was instead a very partisan decision? Will the impact of future 5-4 decisions, and I think there will be a lot of 5-4 decisions going forward, will we feel that these reflect um, studied and con considered con uh, review of Supreme Court text or constitutional text? Or will we just think that the court is simply divided along predictable party lines? I think those are the questions going forward because, in fact, this is something we have never seen before. Thank you so much for that. Um, Jen, uh, two, two questions, I guess. The, the first, knowing Justice Kavanaugh as you do, do, do you believe he will be embittered by the confirmation hearings or do you think he will act, as he said in, in his swearing-in ceremonies, as a justice for all the people will will put all the controversy behind him and we'll really strive to judge neutrally. And, you know, and of course, we're all eager for your thoughts because you, you you do know him well. And then the, 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 the second question is, uh, Chief Justice Roberts is concerned about five to four decisions along partisan lines. He said so ever since he was confirmed and he's signaled that recently. Will Justice Kavanaugh also be concerned about that appearance and reality? And will concerns about the court's legitimacy inform his votes on the court? So those are great questions, and and and, and thank you. Um, so just knowing just Justice Kavanaugh, I mean, my sense, uh, and you mentioned I clerked for him. I clerked for him uh, 12 years ago during his first year um, on the on the D.C. Circuit. And my sense from that year, and then you know, continuing to have him as a mentor since then, is that he will really strive to move past the confirmation hearings. I do not think of him as a, as a person who would be embittered. He's talked publicly a lot about, about trying to bring a sense of optimism and does have a long history in, in Washington, whether it be, you know, in the White House before his time on the court or during other situations in the past that maybe some would have thought of as more politically charged and I think was able still to emerge from those and be an impartial jurist on the on the DC circuit. Um, and so if I, if I had to guess, actually, I would say if anything, he might be, um, 
overly attentive or particularly attentive to trying to dispel any notions that he's going to be um, a partisan on the court, particularly during the, during the first couple of years. I mean, I think in an ideal situation, you would want to have, you know, justices, regardless of what experience they've had prior to coming to the court, in every case, be doing what they believe to be um, right according to the law. And I do think Justice Kavanaugh will will do that. But my sense is from him, because I think, I think he does actually share the chief justice's concern that the court not be seen as a political institution, that he will be try to be particularly attentive to that. I don't know how that will play itself out. Whether that I, I, I would I would think or hope that wouldn't necessarily impact a voting decision, but you know, perhaps justices that are trying to keep in mind views of the court's legitimacy perhaps may do certain things in terms of explaining the basis on which the court is ruling um, or trying to reach across. Um, the ideological spectrum and come up with uh, commonalities in in an approach to a case. Perhaps those will be strategies that different justices will use. About the five to four decisions, I also wanted to quickly mention that um, that I, a post article I believe that came out this past summer, you know, suggested that while while the five to four decisions often get the most play, that since 2000, I think the statistic that I read is that actually only 19% of the decisions have been five to four, and that more than half of the decisions were uh, decided by a, a majority of seven or more justices. And so I do think that the court has a, a strong history of having a lot of unanimous decisions and decisions that have more lopsided majorities, and that we can con uh, expect to continue to see that um, over the years. And then there was also a recent opinion piece by Senator Whitehouse and Senator Hirono um, and one additional senator, I, maybe just yesterday or online just yesterday, talking about five to four decisions and mentioned that I think 79 of them had been by um, what they said was a was a five to four majority aligned by political party. But because over the course of time they were examining, there were more than 200 five to four decisions. There were quite a few, well more than half of those decisions, therefore, that must have been decided by a five to four majority that actually did not line up based on which political party appointed the justices. So sometimes even in those five four decisions, it's not the ominous, all Republican or all Democrat appointed justices lining up. Sometimes even in those, you don't have a straight party split. Um, and, and I think we can expect to see the court moving forward, trying to um, reach decisions according to the law. And then that means a lot in the vast majority of cases that are not necessarily dealing with politically charged issues, there's going to be a bipartisan majority reaching decisions. Thank you very much for that. Thanks also for calling out this really interesting piece, which I've just Googled. Uh, it's by uh, as you say, Senators Hirono, White House, and also Richard Blumenthal, uh, and it was in Slate. It's history will judge John Roberts if his court's steady stream of five to four pro-GOP decisions continues. And the three senators make the argument you can imagine from the headlines, although, as you note, the five to four story is, is more complicated. So, Melissa, Democrats are obviously concerned, as these three senators express, about the idea that important decisions would be decided by these five to four votes. Chief Justice Roberts is as well. I, I had this amazing interview with him right when he was confirmed, uh, where he said that he thought it was bad for the court and bad for the country to issue decisions that appeared to be five to four on partisan lines. And more recently, he's reaffirmed his his determination to try to avoid that. What is John Roberts's power to avoid that, uh, Melissa? Do you think that he can uh, obviate this uh, fear among Democrats that the court is a partisan institution? And are you optimistic that he'll succeed? Well, I, 
So many have said that Justice Chief Justice Roberts will sort of take on Justice Kennedy's role as the swing justice and sort of moderate uh, the court's lurch to the right or shifts um, in its jurisprudence. And I think that Chief Justice Roberts will certainly be the member of the court who I think is most attentive to the question of the court's legitimacy and who has been most attentive to it. Um, but Chief Justice Roberts is very clear um, you know, where his sort of ideological and jurisprudential leanings are. I mean, he isn't a swing justice in the mode of Justice Kennedy, um, who was you know, less predictable in his thinking and the way he might come out on particular cases. Um, he's more to the right. And so that means the center of the court is going to be more to the right. Will he exercise some of his own discretion um, as chief justice um, when there are these sort of five-four splits on cases that are really blockbuster cases? I mean, as Professor Mascot said, a lot of cases are not five-four along predictable party lines, but the blockbuster cases typically are, and those are the ones that stay in the public's mind and perhaps are most emblematic of the court's work for the lay person. And I think in those kinds of cases, the kind of thing that someone like Chief Justice Roberts might be able to do to sort of moderate and sort of maintain the public perception of the court as a neutral body um, is maybe to decide some of these cases more narrowly, more incremental shifts as opposed to lurches to the right. And, you know, this is something that I think is in his power to do just because he can determine who he assigns decisions to, um, whether he is the person in the majority who writes the decision as he often may be. Um, those are things I think are within his control. But the fact that he is the center of the court now, the swing justice, I think has a lot of implications for just how general practice at the court is going to be. You know, with Justice Kennedy as that swing justice for so long, you really had litigants moderating their own positions in order to capture Justice Kennedy in that crucial fifth vote. I think now that the center of the court is more to the right, we may see less of that moderating impulse at the litigation stages um, and the, in the arguments that they make at the lower courts. And I think we'll see different kinds of arguments being made at the court itself. Like there won't necessarily be this impulse to be more temperate, more restrained in the kinds of arguments that are being made. Thank you very much for that. Uh Jen, as Melissa suggests, one thing that Chief Justice Roberts can try to do is persuade his colleagues to decide cases on narrower rather than broader grounds to avoid these uh, five to four splits. Justice Kennedy notably was resistant to that effort. He, he preferred sweeping rulings. Uh, do you believe that Justice Kavanaugh might be more uh, sympathetic to Chief Justice Roberts' efforts to decide cases narrowly? Uh, or would he be more like Justice Kennedy or, or perhaps like Justice uh, Thomas, more determined to just get the right answer, even if that involved a sweeping ruling and a five to four split? Well, I think it's a great question. I mean, I think one one thing actually that could also impact um, the types of cases that the court decides, of course, is 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 how the court votes in terms of which cases it decides to grant a cert review in. Um, and so, who knows how you know Justice Kavanaugh may see a different set of cases as cert worthy than Justice Ke Justice Kennedy, or perhaps the justices will actually keep in mind. Um, concerns about public view of the court based on what cases they decide to hear when or how much percolation they require of the lower courts before the court takes up big questions. So there might be some of this that's shaped a little bit behind the scenes just in terms of the types of questions that the court will consider answering. Um, I, I would expect Justice Kavanaugh um, 
to be driven like a lot of the justices, I presume, are in part based on um, how the question is presented by the litigants. And so I think the justices um, some you know, are more likely, obviously, to reach narrower rulings when the question before the court is, is, is phrased in a way that's narrower. One thing that may mean that he will not um, write as many opinions that are quite as sweeping as, as some of the ones that we've seen from Justice Thomas over the years is Justice Kavanaugh in his confirmation hearings talked a lot more about Story decisis than um, I believe Justice Thomas did in his in his hearings, and so Justice Kavanaugh, we know he hasn't given us exactly the precise factors and how he weighs them, but he has talked about um, the 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 idea that story decisis is baked into the Article Three judicial role in the Constitution. So even at times when litigants raise. Uh, broad questions, whether it's asking directly for something to be overruled or asking a broad constitutional question, I do think at least to some degree he will have in mind um, what has the court's doctrine been on this case up to this point and be thoughtful about that in terms of how he um, works to draft an opinion if, if that role is assigned to him. Um, and so, so I, I, so I do think that 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 approach to judging will um, will temper a little bit the way in which he chooses to um, to rule in cases. Very interesting, um, Melissa. If Justice Kavanaugh behaves as as Jen suggests and is both uh, works with Chief Justice Roberts in having the court refuse to hear controversial cases to begin with, and also perhaps is amenable to deciding them more narrowly, might that help restore the court's legitimacy in the eyes of skeptics? I think it will certainly do a great deal to ensure that the court is not too far out in front of the public on these crucial issues. I mean, again, the court is sort of an unusual organ in our constitutional structure. Unlike Congress, it lacks the power of the purse. Unlike the executive, it lacks the power of the sword. It really depends on the public believing in its legitimacy, believing in the work that it does, even when the public may not necessarily agree with what the court decides um, in, in order to be a legitimate and functioning part of a constitutional democracy. So again, I think more incremental um, shifts are important in these circumstances. I think if we had a true broad lurch to the right in some of these cases, um, I, I think people would again begin to uh, would continue to question whether the court has sort of been overtaken by partisan politics. And what we're seeing is just a predictable split along party lines in an effort to move the court in a clearly rightward direction. Um, more incremental, more modest uh, decisions, I think, will do a lot to alleviate fears that the court has been captured by politics. Uh, w one last beat on the is there a problem question. Jen, you know, there, there, of course, as we all know, a, a long debate about uh, what judicial activism is over the course of the 20th and early 21st century, and, and both sides have accused the other of engaging in it, uh, in, in particular of using broad rulings to strike down laws that they don't like. Do, do, and do you have a sense that the, the current uh, debate might create more support for incrementalism? on the left and the right, and uh, w whether we call it activism or not, basically for narrower decisions rather than broader ones, and, and that th these concerns about legitimacy might factor into judicial decisions more broadly? Well, I'm not necessarily one who sees the idea of the question of judicial activism as, as necessarily narrow versus broad broad rulings. I mean, I, I think going back to the question of um, of, of how broadly the court uh, rules in a given case, um, you know, we certainly have a number of examples recently where the court has issued narrower rulings, um, sometimes when constitutional questions are raised. But at the end of the day, you know, the court does have to, I think, 
honestly and fairly answer the question that's that's presented to it. Um, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, in at least one speech that he had delivered in his role as a judge, talked a little bit about um, this idea of judicial or constitutional restraint. And he also suggested that he sees it more in terms of not necessarily narrow versus broad rulings, just to for the sake of being narrow, but being more guided by the law. That if it's something where the text of the Constitution or statute suggests one particular um, answer that the political branches have not been adhering to, then at that point, the court needs to apply the law perhaps by finding action taken by the executive or the legislature to be unlawful. Um, in an area where there's no law on point, then it would be a problem and a violation of judicial restraint for the court to step in and say there's a, you know, there's a violation, um, you know, just because it violates some norm or preference of the justices themselves. So I think, you know, him at least suggesting that it's important to be driven by, um, you know, by the text of the law when deciding um, whether to strike down or find unlawful something that a co-equal branch is doing. The one other point about judicial restraint is, you know, obviously we want um, the court to play a role in terms of making sure that it's reaching legitimate decisions, being um, fair-minded and not trying to go toward one party or the other and how it reaches decisions. But I also think, you know, there can be um, responsibility taken by some of the other branches of government as well. So, I mean, I think one thing in general that would alleviate a lot of the pressure put on Supreme Court confirmation hearings or how much controversy or strong feelings there are when a particular justice is appointed or not would be if the court just was seen by the whole legal system less frequently as the final absolute arbiter of every important issue. So one thing would be respecting the role of you know, states in the constitutional system sometimes to be able to have the final word on decisions and the federal government not necessarily stepping in. Sometimes it might be Congress playing more of a role to reach solutions. So one particular example that comes to mind now is the issue of national injunctions, that sometimes you know one federal district judge um, on both sides of the aisle has been issuing an injunction that um, you know, might be striking down, you know, something by by a, a president nationwide of both political parties. And is that really the role that we want the federal court to play? And, you know, perhaps the Supreme Court will one day be called to weigh in on the propriety of national injunctions. But there's also legislation in Congress. So maybe this is an area where instead of the Supreme Court actually itself having the final word on what its lower court should be doing with national injunctions, maybe Congress sometimes can step in and answer some of these questions by being clearer in the procedural guidance that it gives to the courts. Perhaps, you know, in some areas, maybe not every single area needs to be always addressed by, you know, the court system. So I think that, you know, if other branches and levels of government can play a role as well in bringing back some balance of the separation of powers, that may also help over the years. Very interesting. Uh, Melissa, uh, what do you make of the suggestion that one way to reduce the uh, perception of partisanship would be for other branches and institutions to play roles. There is a new interest in federalism among liberals and conservatives. Judge Jeff Sutton has just written a great book, 50 Constitutions, about the importance of turning to state constitutions. Um, and uh, Jen has also uh, talked about um, c Congress doing its oversight role as well as thinking about national injunctions. So do you agree? And, and from the progressive perspective, what could the other branches do to reduce the centrality of the Supreme Court? 
So you beat me to it, Jeff. I was going to mention um, the left's newfound affection for federalism, um, which they now call federalism and they don't call states' rights pointedly. Um, but I've seen a lot of this in California where I live for a very long time. But you know, one of the responses to the Trump administration was California taking on a more potent role in articulating policy um, at the state level in areas like environmental law and reproductive rights, where it thought the federal government was moving in a different direction from what the California populace would have wanted. So I think that's going to be an area where you see lots of progressive states getting involved. Um, I, I do think the sort of shift to embracing some of these areas that I, I think for a long time have been viewed as sort of captured by the right um, means that what we really do need is sort of a set of first principles that are not ideological, but rather sort of neutral principles about the role of states um, when states intervene. And we haven't really had them. I don't think we have them now, even as progressive um, leaders have you know gra- grappled with the question of federalism and have advanced questions of federalism. Insofar as the other branches taking on a more robust role so that the court is no longer quite so weighty in these particular controversial issues, I think that's a terrific aspiration. But, you know, right now, I think political, um, the political legitimacy of both the federal branches, the political branches of the federal government are at all time lows, like many people don't trust either Congress or the executive. Um, So the idea that somehow the decisions made in both of those branches will be viewed as more legitimate than what could be done at the Supreme Court or somehow beyond the political process, I think is unlikely. Um, And then I think that leaves us with state governments. I think we've seen a lot of really interesting activism at the state level in both um, in both the progressive and the conservative groups um, to deal with state legislatures and to advance interests um, across state executives and agencies. And to me, it seems like that's an area that can be incredibly generative over the next few years. Um, I, I think I'm a little disenchanted and disillusioned with the prospect of a lot of this coming from the federal branches. Thank you for that. Uh, Jen, we're hearing this renewed interest from both liberals and conservatives about uh, federalism in the states. I I misstated the name of Jeff Sutton's superb book. It's 51 Imperfect Solutions and uh, recommended to all We the People listeners. Um, uh, But Jen, I want to ask you more broadly about the theory called departmentalism. Some on the left and the right are arguing for a return to the theory that uh, Professor Keith Whittington defines as the notion that each branch or department of the government has an equal and independent authority to interpret the Constitution. And Whittington notes that this has been embraced by presidents from Jefferson to Jackson to Lincoln to Roosevelt to Reagan, uh, all insisting on uh, the idea that the Supreme Court is not the sole interpreter of the Constitution and rejecting the idea of judicial supremacy. Uh, Can you describe departmentalism, what its consequences would be, and and whether you find it in any way appealing? Well, I think, you know, that there could be perhaps a narrow view of departmentalism as well as broader views of departmentalism. I mean, I think if it's viewed just in in its most simplest form as, you know, the idea that 
all actors in every branch of the government take an oath to the Constitution and have to abide by it, that that, of course, would be a principle that would be, you know, very good. And, um, you know, we, we want to assume that Congress, when it's legislating, is 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 putting its own mind to work to try to figure out if what it's doing is constitutional, the president as well. And so that certainly I think there needs to be a little bit more of a mindset or understanding at every level of government and in every branch that um, that each branch needs to take responsibility to interpret the Constitution for itself and not just wait and see um, what the court's going to do. At the same time, I mean, I think stronger versions of the departmentalist view would be to say, well, you know, the Supreme Court's decision should only have so much reach and they don't necessarily, if, if a holding in one case doesn't necessarily need to bind, um, you know, the complete range of activity in that area and every other branch. Um, I cannot honestly say that I have I've worked out completely my view of um, exactly to what extent departmentalism should be imposed in that particular way, other than, as I say, to, to, to suggest that I do think each branch, you know, president, members of Congress, um, need to be mindful of um, of the role that they play within the constitutional system and not just wait until the court weighs in. At the same time, I mean, you know, we have a system right now where the court's reaching decisions and it's we have a practice of those decisions being implemented within the other branches in a particular way. And I certainly don't think that we want a situation like we have now where, you know, certain folks are, are saying maybe the court's not legitimate or maybe we need to make a change because people feel as though there's been some political turmoil. I think that would be the worst time to try to revisit something like departmentalism. And to the extent that we want to take a closer look at um, the extent and the weight that each Supreme Court decision is going to have, that we would want to wait until we were perhaps at a period, if there is to be one in the future, that seems less politically contentious, has had less uh, dramatic recent change in the Supreme Court, and where we can be a little bit more assured that we're going to actually be looking at solutions like departmentalism or whatever it would be, increasing the number of justices, term limits, any proposal that somebody might mention, and make sure that we're looking at it from more of a cool temperament and letting the entire system of government think through whether changing the balance at all and the power between the branches is a wise move and what the implications of that would be. Thank you for that. Uh, Melissa, as Jen suggests, there are uh, strong and weak versions of departmentalism. Uh, Matthew Frank, writing from the right on the National Review, says that uh, under departmentalism, even if a president might reject the Supreme Court's conclusion about the scope of presidential or executive powers, it wouldn't give him the power to ignore a court decision interpreting the scope of legislative powers. And then on the left, you have some very uh, dramatic suggestions uh, ranging from Mike Sachs, who said, if a conservative court strikes down affirmative action, I can see the feds refusing to enforce SCOTUS decrees to Ian Samuels on a recent First Monday episode saying if the Supreme Court is, is perceived as illegitimate in the wake of Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation, government officials might defy the judgments of the court in cases where Kavanaugh is in the majority. That would be an extreme position indeed. Um, what is your sense about the range of positions on departmentalism and do you find any of them appealing? So again, um, I think everything is on the table in this moment. I, I think it's an unusual political moment where there's a lot of um, anxiety about what is coming out of Washington and both the political branches. And then we've had this incredibly bruising confirmation battle that I think have left many people with doubts about 
the court, um, maybe not a sense that the court is completely illegitimate, but certainly doubts about the court's continued legitimacy. Um, departmentalism, what it, what it has going for its favor is that there is a kind of restraint to it, right? These other actors, all of them with a particular charge to interpret the Constitution in a particular way and to act in accordance with the Constitution um, may have a limiting effect on the, the other branches' work. I mean, again, it sort of checks and balances in this kind of macro system. And, and you know, I can understand the appeal of it. Um, the one thing we haven't talked about at all here, though, is even as we've talked about structure and how to limit the work of particular branches, if they're deemed to be over encroaching, we haven't talked about the question of minority rights. And that historically has been something that individuals have looked to the court to do. And at a time where so many people feel that, um, they are part of a majority whose views are um, being supplanted to, you know, a minority that actually is probably numerically closer to being a majority than a minority. They're they're more we're more evenly divided than we have been before. Um, the question of who's going to protect the interests of minorities, whether it's racial and ethnic minorities or religious minorities, um, or or women, those questions still come to the fore, and the court at least in our generation, has been the body that has been most forceful in articulating protections against majority will for those vulnerable groups. And I think one of the questions that departmentalism can't really answer is who's going to play that role? Will it be one of these other branches? Will it be these individual members of Congress? Like The court has been the role, the, per, the group in our lifetime that has taken on that role. And if the court is illegitimate, any protections in favor of these rights will also be viewed as illegitimate, and any efforts to not protect those rights will also be viewed as illegitimate, and again, um, compound what I think is a looming crisis. Thank you for that. Uh, Jen, we've talked about uh, more incremental or narrow decisions. We've talked about departmentalism. Let's talk about uh, three final possible responses to a, a, a perceived uh, crisis of uh, legitimacy, whether fair or not. Uh, Democrats are talking about judicial impeachment and court packing, and it's not inconceivable if the Democrats take the House that we might see at least rumblings toward a judicial impeachment. And then if the Democrats take uh, all three branches at some point in the future, some are calling for court packing, for increasing the size of the court to 13 justices or some such. Uh, what would the consequences of these actions be, and uh, why do you think they're a bad idea? Well, I'll, I'll take the I'll take judicial impeachment first. Um, I and I believe actually I was I was listening to perhaps a recent podcast that that you actually had participated in where you had talked about um, the rarity of the judicial impeachment solution, and I think you had talked about attempts perhaps to impeach Justice Chase, if I'm remembering correctly, and you had mentioned that the conclusion had been really that impeachment was going to be should be reserved for um, problematic actions taken in the in really on the bench or in an official way, you know, bad, bad conduct in the role of a judge. And so I don't think, you know, right now we don't, um, you know, we don't have that here. Justice Kavanaugh's just sat on the court. So I don't think, I don't think that is, is the first place that we want to go to use that as kind of a political tool to up, to uproot a result that, um, you know, that we may not be happy with. So that should be a sort of a limited, very limited, rare, um, approach about court packing. Um, 
you know, I think I think you with solutions. One thing to point out as well, um, I, I believe the the statistic, or maybe it's not a statistic, but the history that I've read suggests that I, I think it was. 1869 or 1879 when we moved to nine justices and we haven't changed the number since then. So it's a very longstanding um, tradition that we have right now of having nine justices. It doesn't necessarily mean that that number should not ever change, but it does suggest that we don't move to too quickly towards court packing or adding justices. So I think that we should, again, with that solution, like with everything, be be calm and careful with it and perhaps take some time till we move away from the moment that has caused us to want to think about it and really consider whether that is, is the proper solution. Um, and the other thing I would point out is, you know, court packing is something that both sides, if they, you know, if they have a strong view, maybe an approach people want to move to. And so if one side moves to it now, you know, the other side may add to it and, and continue, um, you know, amping up the numbers or using court packing as a, as a tool or a strategy, and we, we want to think through whether we think that's viable. In fact, I was on a panel discussion just about a year ago um, at a Federalist Society event where there was an individual who suggested um, adding a lot of members to the federal judiciary at lower levels, perhaps to um, make it easier to have um, administrative adjudication cases not be heard within administrative agencies, but be and be heard within Article Three courts. And there was quite a strong uh, reaction against court packing at that time and that proposal, saying maybe it was going to be perceived as too political. In fact, people even within the same um, ideology or conservative constitutional background as the person making the suggestion were saying they didn't think it was a good idea. And so I don't think now, you know, now it's a few months later. And the idea is coming from perhaps the other side of the constitutional divide. And, you know, I think it, it it makes sense to think through why it was a bad idea perhaps a few months ago, why it might still be a bad idea now. And, you know, perhaps if we ever decided we needed to move to a different number of justices, one way to test whether we in fact thought it was a good idea would be to put it on some kind of a delay where if the Congress passing the legislation providing for the new positions would make it so that those positions could not be filled by the current president in office, but by a president 10 years down the line or something like that. So we wouldn't necessarily know what political party was going to be filling the seats and let that be our test as to whether we just intrinsically think it's a good idea or whether we're turning to it just as a political solution. Very interesting. Um, Melissa, so Jen has argued against both court packing and impeachment on court packing she notes that the number has been fixed at nine since 1869. You're absolutely right. And a quick Google has confirmed that as well as confirming that before that, uh, the size of the court was intensely political with uh, the number going up and down uh, with the Judiciary Acts of 1801 and 1802. And then it was fixed at seven in 1866 uh, um, and uh, finally at nine under the Grand Presidency in 69. So uh, you argue that it would be wrong to allow uh, Congress to change the size of the court for political reasons. And then on impeachment, you note, uh, and thanks for listening to that podcast, that the Chase precedent has suggested that justices should only be impeached for uh, serious uh, crimes and not for disagreement with their judicial decisions. So, Melissa, what are your thoughts on court packing and judicial impeachment? If you thought I would weigh in in favor of both, you, you may be sadly disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> that everything I'm crushed, absolutely. Sorry. <laughs> no trouble. Uh, you know, I, I agree with Professor Mascott that um, 
this warrants, I think, really careful consideration. Um, you know, we've seen these things escalate. I mean, we might think about the filibuster debates um, of the last 10 years. I mean, like that, like the constant question over whether or not judges would be confirmed to the bench or whether we would have to remove the filibuster in order because the partisanship in, co- in the Senate had gotten so bad. Um, and eventually the filibuster was removed for lower federal court judges. And then eventually for Neil Gorsuch's appointment, it was removed for Supreme Court justices. And I think that has only increased the level of partisanship that we've seen. And I think the debacle that was the most recent confirmation hearings reflects the partisanship that was stoked by that fight over the filibuster. So I, I'm in no hurry to continue stoking those flames. But I will say that um, the fact that these proposals are even being floated, because these are truly nuclear options, I think, um, suggests how broad the concern and anxiety about the court's legitimacy is. The idea that the court does not reflect a kind of moderate position in American politics, but rather is deeply, deeply partisan as an institution. Um, I think this has been exacerbated uh, by the uh, conflagration over Merrick Garland's stolen seat. I mean, we haven't talked about that, but that is certainly part of the backdrop against which this confirmation hearing took place and certainly part of what is stoking the interest in the what I think are quite extreme views um, in terms of packing the court or otherwise impeaching sitting justices. Many thanks for that. We have one final potential solution And we'll see whether we are going to end on a bipartisan note or not. Uh, It is term limits on our wonderful We the People podcast last week. Adam Liptak and uh, the great Richard Epstein agreed that term limits might make sense, at least in theory, even if they might be hard to uh, implement in practice. And they talked about various ways of implementing them, 18-year terms, giving each president the chance to appoint two justices and so forth. Uh, we'll be begin with you, uh, Jen. What do you think about the idea of term limits for justices? Well, I, I think term limits is something that I personally would want to give a little bit more thought to before weighing in as a, as a personal policy preference one way or the other. I mean, um, certainly I think that's, again, another solution where we would want to take the time to to consider it as a, as a you know, system-wide and, and determine if that's really what we think is best because we do have the 200-plus history of lifetime tenure for the federal judiciary. And that I've been doing a lot of research uh, for a project I'm working on looking back at the ratification debates and, you know, life tenure and the independence of the judiciary were seen as, as, as going hand in hand. And that's a really important value. So before we give that up, even though there might be some really good reasons for it, we want to think it through carefully. I mean, the one thing that I find a little bit, um, better about that idea than the court packing one is just that to to make that change, I think you'd need to have a constitutional amendment. And so at least going that route, that would require a national debate at many different levels, which I think would be much more likely to lead to um, a really well thought out um, solution about the way in which we'd implement it that may not happen uh, from a change that we can just uh, get through federal legislation. Thank you for that. Uh, Melissa, we're all breathless to see whether we're going to end on a bipartisan note or not. Uh, do you, as, as, a, as a policy and constitutional matter, uh, do you think term limits for justices are a good idea or not? I'm going to, again, be the fly in the punch bowl. I don't <laughs> think they're a good idea. Um, I think they would certainly lower the heat and the confirmation process. I mean, it, the stakes wouldn't seem quite so astronomical if each justice were term limited. But I think as a practical matter for judging, they would create their own problems. Um, you know, 
Justice's views, as Andrew Martin and Kevin Quinn and Lee Epstein have shown in their work, don't remain fixed. They evolve over the course of their careers. And that's not surprising. You know, it may take time to develop a particular judicial philosophy or an interpretive approach. And that might take longer than the 18 years that has typically um, been proposed as the ideal frame for term limits. Um, more importantly, I think, um, if you are a term-limited justice, you might recognize that your own time on the court is limited and that your time with a particular group of justices is limited. And that might shape decision-making in ways that we might find problematic or alarming. So a justice who is eager to initiate a particular shift, whether to the left or the right, or to reverse a particular precedent, might worry about the changing composition of a term limited court and might be inclined to make the kind of lurching shift from left to right and back again um, within a relatively short period of time. And that kind of volatility, I think, is the absolute antithesis of the Anglo-American legal tradition, which is sort of staked on this idea of slow and incremental change. Thank you so much for that. Uh, and I don't, you were, you were not a fly because in fact, I, I detected some, uh, some skepticism by both of you about term limits, which was a, a helpful and illuminating note uh, on which to end. But our, our final end is our, our, our closing statements. And, and this is the chance to tell our listeners as uh, intensely and uh, succinctly as possible what your answer to the questions we've been discussing are. So, uh, uh, Jen, the, the first closing statement is to you. Is there a legitimacy crisis on the Supreme Court? And what, if anything, should the court, Congress, and citizens do about it? I, and, and I'll just reiterate what I said at the beginning. I, I don't think there's a legitimacy problem. I hear some of the statistics about poll numbers being lower. And, you know, as as, as was also mentioned in this podcast, the poll numbers for uh, Congress are, are low as well. And, you know, Congress is making decisions. It's legislating. It's appropriating. We're abiding by those decisions. And so I don't think uh, negative poll numbers or public concern needs to uh, have any kind of definitive statement on the legitimacy of the, of the Supreme Court. I think that the legitimacy of the Supreme Court hinges in large part on the justices um, continuing as they have for uh, hundreds of years and for decades to continue to try to uphold their oath to the Constitution, their oath to apply the law fairly uh, for liberty for um, for all citizens um, at every level, and that the, each individual justice and then the justice together as a court should continue to try to do that to the best of their ability. I mean, there, there's also many, many lower-level federal judges who are involved day in and day out in um, in preserving rights for individual citizens and in helping to ensure that the law is administrated fairly. And as those judges continue to follow their constitutional oath, that will also bring protection to individual citizens um, and, and strength to the democracy. And then I do think that, um, you know, Congress and the, you know, the president and people who work within the legislative and the executive branches also should be, you know, routinely, as all of us should as citizens, aware of our, you know, the, what the Constitution says, aware of their constitutional duties and the role that they can play as well in making sure that there's fairness and equity um, for all and that jobs are really being administered for the best of um, the public interest and citizens' interest um, and not just for one's own individual particular preferences. And then also, um, as Professor Murray mentioned as well, I, I, I also agree that there is 
um, room to think about more of a role for states. And I like Professor Murray's suggestion about um, trying to think through ideologically neutral ways to encourage federalism and states having a role within the policy areas that they are designed within the constitutional system to play. And I thank the listeners very much for uh, participating and listening in this uh, in this conversation and for the National Constitution Center for hosting it. Thank you for those generous words. Uh, Melissa, last word to you. Is there a legitimacy crisis at the court? And what, if anything, should Congress, the court, and citizens do about it? Well, first, let me say thank you as well um, for having me. This has been terrific, and it's been great to speak with your audience. Uh, I don't think that there is the kind of crisis that we imagine. I don't think individuals think that the court is illegitimate. But I do think that public faith in the idea of the court as a neutral, nonpartisan body has been deeply, deeply hobbled um, after this last round of confirmation battles. And you know, I, I think a lot of work will have to be done to restore public faith in the idea of the Supreme Court as a neutral body. And in the meantime, I think for citizens, I, I've said this for years, but I think we need to think beyond the court um, when we're thinking about what it means to live in a constitutional democracy. And we have so come to rely on the court for so many things. We're making all of these changes when I think there are lots of other venues in which we can direct, um, in a very direct way, our own attention. So you know, if you're concerned about the state of reproductive rights, you should be concerned about what's going on in state legislatures. Um, those cases don't get to the Supreme Court if those laws aren't passed and if they aren't signed into law by governors at the state level. So there's a very concrete place where people who are interested in these issues can actually direct their attention and should direct their attention. And I'm always reminded of the great learned hand quote, um, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. And when it dies there, no constitution, no law, no court can save it. No constitution, no law, no court can even do much to help it. Um, We will save ourselves. Thank you so much uh, to professors Melissa Murray and Jen Mascott for an illuminating, thoughtful, and and deeply civil discussion about this uh, divisive and important topic. We the People listeners, it's so important in these polarized times to convene these civil discussions among people who agree and disagree respectfully and with so much intelligence and depth and civility. So thank you uh, to professors Murray and Mascott for spreading constitutional light and hope to have you both on again soon. Uh, Melissa, Jen, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Jackie McDermott. Please recommend We the People to your friends and colleagues so they too can spread constitutional light and educate themselves about the Constitution. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts, Google, or wherever you listen. And remember, dear We the People listeners, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We must engage citizens across the country to support our work so that it can continue and we can continue to spread constitutional light and convene these deeply meaningful and important and civil constitutional dialogues. Uh, There's so few places in America for these discussions to happen and the Constitution Center is so honored to fulfill its mission in this way. So please support us. Go to the website, go to constitutioncenter.org and become a member to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.